Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Revelation Project podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and today I am interviewing Margaret Klein Salomon, PhD. She's a clinical psychologist turned climate warrior whose work helps people to face the deeply frightening, painful truths of the climate emergency and transform their despair into effective action. She is the founder and executive director of the Climate Mobilization, which advocates an all-hands-on-deck whole society mobilization to protect humanity and the living world from climate catastrophe. She is the author of Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth, a radical self-help guide for the climate emergency. And you can find her at facingtheclimateemergency.com. Hey, Margaret. Hi, Monica. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> oh, it's so good to hear you. So you're sitting in the Catskills in New York, right? That's right. So I'd love to actually start just by kind of focusing on ah, what, what really captured my attention is clinical psychologist turned climate warrior. Tell me more. Yeah, so I grew up in a psychological family, kind of the the family business, and so it was always part of my worldview. Uh, and then I, I also experienced psychotherapy as a as a patient. I've been in my own psychoanalytic psychotherapy for many many years, like more than ten. <laughs> more, I mean, God, how many years? Um, and. <laughs> And it just helped my life so much that I, I wanted to, I wanted to do it. I wanted to figure out this amazing thing of healing people through talking. So I, I got my clinical psychology PhD and was planning on a wonderful, you know, stimulating, rewarding, financially relatively lucrative career, and it, you know, seemed great. Uh, but the climate emergency was like nagging at me. Uh, more and more until it was like a flashing red light in my face. Um, let's uh, let's call that my own terror. I couldn't go on in the same direction. I yeah. And so, what really changed everything for me is when my good friend said to me, "I, I had been thinking, okay, I'll, I'll I'll write about the climate emergency. I'll start a blog, you know, commentary." And my friend said to me discourse isn't enough. Think, what could you do to actually solve this? And it was, it was like my head exploded because I had never thought, oh, try to solve the climate emergency. It's, it's too huge. Mm. Right. I yeah, was, it's I paralyzing. Was yeah. I was an academic. I thought, you know, that's what you do. You write about something. But I, the idea of basically using myself like like you know going going for this huge mission and kind of making myself a whatever a, a tool of that mission or a, you know a, whatever a soldier in the army or a yeah, an instrument of change like a change agent yeah yeah it was like okay that's it i and 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 true truly i've never looked back that's it's it's i want i want to i at the time 
I wanted to do that. And even to just seven years later, mm -hmm. I want to do that, solve the climate emergency more than I want anything else, more than I've ever wanted. More, yeah, right. So I'm really hearing the desire in your your voice and the passion that you're so connected to. And I want to go back to this nagging because so it's like do do do. You're going through your you know every day kind of having the what I call kind of the mainstream conversation, right? About kind of getting your degree and you know starting off in the world in that way with wanting to get a you know, your career under your belt. And, but there's this thing nagging at you. I'm wondering if there was an event, like something that happened, or if it was just kind of that cumulative build of like, or a feeling. So that just kind of had a tipping point into, I have to do something. Yeah, there were several things. I moved to New York, Hurricane Irene happened, Hurricane Sandy happened. I was kind of like, or Superstorm Sandy, I was like, wait, hurricane, New York gets hurricanes? Mm. And that was it. And reading, you know, I I'm like to read the news and whatever, online articles through social media, that kind of thing. I have a, let's say a smart circle. And I, so climate was coming up in those ways too. Uh, but for a long time, I was too, let's say, emotionally fragile mm. to handle it. I would, I, I engaged in the defense of willful ignorance. And I would, when I would start to read an article about the climate emergency and then say, oh my God, I can't handle this, you know, X, like get it out of my face. Yeah. Kind of, kind of like the, like, I can't, I love this because I think that what you're, what you're pointing to here is something that we can all relate to, at least I can, where it's like, oh my God, I can't read about this. Like, it's so depressing. It's so upsetting, right? I have to put this away. The The truth is that it has this indelible kind of like imprint over time. Like there's something in me. And this is what I loved about reading your book was like this gnawing feeling that something is deeply, deeply out of balance and wrong and that like we've got to do something. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's I think that's so true. So many people know that something's wrong. And when you start talking to people, one of the about what's actually happening, one of the most disturbing responses, I think, is uh, people who say, oh, well, yeah, we're fucked. Mm -hmm. Just like, oh, yeah, this this is a sinking ship. Absolutely. But like, you know, a kind of complacency or cynicism about it. That's like, I, you know, I kind of want to shake them and say, like, what do you, you what do you mean we're fucked? You're saying like, oh, billions of people are going to die and millions of species are going to go extinct and that's okay with you? Like, how do you go to sleep at night? Yeah. So, so Margaret, what do you call that? Like, obviously there's, you know, we know, we know the term climate denier, but there's something else here. You, you know, you talk about the cynicism and the complacency. What is that? <sighs> It's a combination. I mean, it's, I, I wish there, I like your question. I mean, I wish I could say one term, but I mean, I think it's, it's cynicism, it's helplessness and hopelessness. It's it, there, there's the two term doomer mm -hmm. for people who are, think our job is to just resign ourselves and kind of get emotionally comfortable with the fact that this is happening. And they say, there's no way 
there's nothing we can do. The concept of earth in hospice, mm-hmm. which is, uh, yeah, so, so gross. I'm sorry, but it, like, I'm not ready to die. Yeah. I, I And I'm not ready to see my fellow humans and other life die either. And I just... What I'm hearing or making up is that it's in the realm of like a total emotional disconnect. And... That's true. I, I often... Yeah, in in my work, I mean, and I only bring this to the surface because I it's really reminding me that so much of of the work that I do and so much of the work that I talk about is the importance of us kind of going back to our feeling bodies, like our actual bodies. Like in in my work, a lot of what I talk about is the fact that women have disembodied oftentimes in order to survive the constant assault on you know, their own worthiness, their own capabilities, you know, like the objectification of women's bodies, right? I could go on and on. But the bottom line is that there comes a time where, yes, when we're children or young adults, we leave our bodies kind of in order to survive. And we're also taught that our emotions are dangerous, wrong, not to trust them. But actually, that is doing such a disservice to to our world, to to us as humans and to the, the world at large. Because if we cannot feel our feelings or if all we know is kind of this wide pendulum swing between kind of cynicism and hopelessness, you know, all the way to the other side to kind of like bliss, there's this there's this whole range that we're missing of like how to cope with and be with different levels of emotion that also offer us wisdom and that help us to actually mobilize others, speak truth, you know, generate inspiration, come up with collaborative ideas. Like I feel like part of what you were pointing to is so important as like the core of the work, which is why I loved this fact that you were, you know, also a psychotherapist. Um, and, and if it's okay, I just want to read an excerpt that that really spoke to me. Of course. So here it is. So Inside all of us, a battle rages. It's the battle between knowing and not knowing, between fully facing the truth emotionally as well as intellectually and shrinking from it. We sense that we're in a climate emergency and a mass extinction event, but we have a deep-seated psychological instinct to defend against that knowledge. And I love that you wrote null slash edge, knowledge. The pain is shouting at us. Everything is dying. Somewhere inside, we know that humanity and the natural world are in peril. Indeed, we feel the horrors of civilizational collapse and the sixth mass extinction of species in our bodies. Our minds attempt to shield us from this pain. We avoid, distract, deny, and numb ourselves. But these defenses work only temporarily. When we fail to process our emotions and mourn our losses, the pain takes on tremendous power. It follows us around like a shadow, and we become increasingly desperate to avoid what we know. Wow. That just, for me, hits it on the head, like what we were just talking about. Yeah, I just, I mean, I just want to, I guess, speak directly to listeners and just say, yeah, do you feel it? Mm. Do you, or, or I I mean, yeah, I I think, I think you do. I think it's, I I think it's in there 
maybe in your stomach or in the in the recesses of your mind like a like like as you said a feeling that things are fundamentally not well Mm -hmm. yeah yes and so I think you know again I think a lot of a lot of this work and, and a lot of the work that you're doing is how to help people kind of face some of these very difficult emotions and then help them mobilize help them actually get into action so tell me more about that The first thing is to realize that all thoughts and feelings are okay and, you know, normal and healthy and that the way to relate to your feelings is through uh, non-judgmental self-compassion. When I was a therapist, I said this to literally every patient because our society is so messed up about this. There's so much... Every, everybody has these ideas of, oh, I shouldn't feel that way. It's so wrong to, you know, I'm angry, but I shouldn't be or whatever. I had this horrible thought. I'm a terrible person. And I'm not just talking about climate here. I mean, I'm talking about every situation in life. The best way to handle your thoughts and feelings is to non-judgmentally accept them, be curious about them, and then after experiencing them and and welcoming them to find a synthesis uh, with knowledge of your emotions and your more rational mind that can kind of say, all right, that's how I'm feeling. Is that like what, you know, is that, what is that telling me? Do I, do I believe that feeling? Right. Is that, or is that something coming from, you know, my, my childhood or, or my trauma or something? Or, or is this, or am I really right to feel this way? So with, with the climate, the, and ecological crisis, the feelings are, are huge, right? As, as they should be. We're talking about absolute terror for ourselves and our family and the, the whole human family. We're talking about deep grief, not only for all of the people and species that have already been lost, but for the future that we thought we had, like our personal future, everything that you had hoped for and planned and your, you know, your retirement or your career and you know, the family hopes and dreams and, you know, the idea of generational, generational, you know, continuity, it's all not going to happen the way that we want because the the climate crisis will ruin everything. Yes, and I I don't want to interrupt here. And I, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Well, I, well I, what yeah. I was going to say is that I also really because here's the other great part of your your work is like yes, it's like it's about getting real with exactly what you're saying, right? Like I know you don't want to hear this, and here it is, right? Like here's here's like the truth, but. Here's the there's good news and bad news here. There's good news and bad news here because we actually during the time of COVID have seen have had the opportunity to see a window into what is possible when we stop the destruction. Absolutely. The coronavirus has and and the response from governments all around the world and institutions, you know, universities, businesses, everybody 
has shown us that we can change everything in days, mm-hmm. not, not years. And fundamentally, to me, the most positive thing that's come out of COVID is the idea that we control the economy, it doesn't control us, and that we should make drastic interventions in the economy in order to protect life. I want to say, I want to underline should and replace it with must. There you go. Only because, again, it's like, we must, we must. So I... (laughs) Uh, so I also just want to say that there's so many resources. So for all of our listeners and for what I really want to have is a conversation of reimagining what's possible. Because I think that, Margaret, some of the some of what is missing here is and I'm not saying in in your writing, but I'm saying in kind of the psyche of the human species, is this understanding our imaginations are such an important vehicle for actually creating, for inspiring, for generating the energy, the awareness, and the attraction to living in a different way. It's like when we can imagine it, we can actually create it. We can actually live it. And so I'd love it if you could point to or talk about some of the miraculous things that you have seen happen through different, I guess, avenues that speak to the the kind of hope that I'm that I'm talking about. Yeah. As I as I write about in the in the book, my my experience has been once I dedicated myself to this mission in as full a way, I, I think, as as one can, it really is it really is miraculous what the kind of things that have have happened. Like the right people appearing at the right time. Mm. For for one example. I did end up starting a blog, but it was all based on, okay, I, I have, I want to start an organization. These are kind of the, you know, I want it to be based on telling the truth and advocating for something that could actually protect humanity. You know, I think we could, this should use a World War II metaphor, whatever. I had a kind of basic vision and I wrote a blog to like kind of, you know, get, get the vision out there. After I published two articles online, and just barely kicked off this blog. I heard from a young journalist uh, named Ezra Silk, mm-hmm. who said, he wrote me a long email. He said, I've read all your work. I'm in. Here's who I am. What do I do? Mm-hmm. And he became the co-founder and he's the political director now of the climate mobilization. I mean, this is someone who I've worked with you know, very closely uh, for the last seven years. And he just, he, he emailed me when this was just kicking off and said, I'm in, what can I do? I mean, I don't know. I like, 
does that does that strike you as amazing to to me it's pretty wonderful well i love i can't think of who said it but you know we'll know we're headed in the right direction by the increase of synchronicities and it's true i think that when we start paying attention when we start speaking our truth like even to give even to put some language and speak out loud our anxieties around this it, because i i find that a lot of people are doing what we talked about earlier, you know, either like pulling it up, they're like horrified to read it, it feels makes them feel hopeless, insignificant, impotent, and they shut it down versus kind of this, you know, recognizing and realizing that part of the process of actually making change happen is allowing allowing it to be so allowing things to be what they are be having being willing to have a relationship with the truth. And it's the truth that, you know, it's by accepting it that we can change it. It's by allowing ourselves to face that scary shadow that we're able to then illuminate an area. And what I want to say to so many of our listeners, because as you know, Margaret, this is something that was and is continues to be near and dear to my heart, having been in this industry for many years. I kind of told you a little bit about my past. 11 years ago, I was raising venture capital for an online social network for tweens. And the whole idea was to bring to life a storybook series where six eco-minded heroes help save the planet. And they learn that their power to make a difference is on the inside. I was thinking about that time in our world, I think it was in the 1950s when the superheroes came out. And it's like we needed a superhero. But the truth of the matter is that we, I believe that we are both human and divine. And it's by actually accepting our human shadow that we're able to tap into our divine selves. And there's something there about, you know, we talk about the word miracle and we talk about the words synchronicity. And what's true is that I believe that when we align, we are divine. Like when we align with truth, our personal truth. So again, being able to say, use those words and speak the truth of how we're feeling is what makes those miracles happen. It's because we're co-creating. We have the ability to co-create with our universe. And I think that by not speaking the truth or looking away from the truth, what we're doing is we're attracting more of kind of this same ignorance, this same denial, and it just grows and grows and grows. And we all have to really, I think, take a stand and look at the things that are destroying our earth and destroying us. Admit it. Because this is where the transformation happens. This is where we get to then actually have an experience like the one that you're talking about, where suddenly somebody comes out of nowhere and says, hey, let's work together on this. And what I love too about what you were starting, I think you were starting to say earlier, is like, we don't have to just because we want to save the climate, it doesn't mean we have to stop shaving and wear Birkenstocks. Like, for heaven's sakes, it's about, I think, finding your little piece, your part in making, you know, the movement, forwarding the movement, making the movement stronger and getting us to that tipping point where we can actually start to heal and regenerate the planet. Wow, I just went off. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where to start. I think, well, yeah, I guess I think 
separating the truth from what we wish mm. and recognizing, I mean, per- personally speaking, oh my God, I wish this wasn't happening. Yeah. I mean, I'm whatever privileged person. I have a very like nice and enjoyable life and I would, I would be so nice to just live it. Yeah. I don't want to have to worry about this. Yeah. And, and not be day in, day out terrified of collapse and working so hard to try and turn this around. I mean, I would like, it would be, it would feel like absolutely huge burden, the biggest burden possible if, if this weren't happening. So I can understand how appealing, how it feels like climate emergency, ecological emergency cannot be true because it's just too horrible. And I really, really don't want it to be true. So it just, it just can't. If we, if we want to survive, we have to recognize that, that we have to grapple with this. If we, if, if we choose to protect our feelings over our need to grapple with reality, we will not make it. We, that's, it's just, that won't work. So yeah, we have to choose to protect life, humanity and all life to make that the priority rather than protecting our short-term emotional like safety and comfort. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We need to push ourselves. And as we do that, if you confront climate truth, if you actually read about this and let yourself feel and you are, and you feel, you know, intense emotions, you should, that, that is an act of courage. Mm -hmm. And you should honor it, right? Like if you, for example, cry about the climate emergency, good for you. Mm. And that's so outside of what both the kind of broad culture and particularly in the climate movement, because it's so, it, the conversation comes from science and it's kind of hyper-rational and anti-emotional in a way that has really hurt the cause. Mm, it's really interesting that you say that. Say more about that. There, so science, again, I, my, my grandfather was actually a meteorologist. So he, I mean, meteorology is not the same as climate science, but it's highly related, right? Because the climate impacts weather integrally. So he was one of the first people to read papers about the greenhouse effect. No, that's not exactly true. One of the first few thousand, let's say. Okay. Today, he would have been diagnosed on the autism spectrum. You know, there's a, there's a kind of scientific mind and in the scientific culture, they really try to kind of, I don't know, not get rid of that part of themselves or compartmentalize it in an attempt to be, again, hyper-rational. But we're seeing more and more, even in the realm of science, that bringing a more emotionally informed perspective can be enriching. So scientists with this hyper-rational perspective then try to communicate with the public about the climate emergency, but it's, they don't act passionate Mm. or even upset. They're talking 
So matter of fact. Yes. Yes. Matter of fact. That's a great, that's a great word for it. Oh, I love this because yeah, the word that comes up for me is there's no resonance there. It's like we're emotional beings. We, we are attracted to people who are, you know, passionate and hopeful and inspiring. And like, you can deliver the, the facts in a way that has some spirit behind it, some feeling. Almost like, don't you care? Mm. Doesn't this reality that you're sharing impact you on an emotional and spiritual and personal level? And, and by not presenting that side, I just, I think, yeah, I think it's contributed to the passivity and ability of the public to compartmentalize climate. And I don't mean to just blame scientists, but it's, you know, the media, for example, has covered climate as a science story. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it is, it, and it is not right. Sure. It, it, you know, science describes what is happening and has helped us understand what's coming in the future based on their, you know, expertise on natural systems. And that is critical, but as I, you know, I talk about in the book, right? If you look at an example like cancer, which is also, you know, obviously we need scientists and experts and doctors to understand this at the, you know, finest level that they can and explain the scientific element. If someone tells you they have cancer, you're not like, oh, I don't know about that. I'm not a scientist. It's, it doesn't, it, they're telling you something about their, their life and their and their possibility of death and you have to respond to that on a human level and that's i mean and that's what's happening with our planet it is gravely endangered and that means all of us living on it yeah i'm recalling actually really so if i kind of go back even further i i'm thinking about my brother is a farmer he has a farm in Harpswell, Maine called Tuco's Farm. And before he got into farming, um, and actually one of, he had two inspirations for farming. One was his his wife. And the other was, I believe, um, the author Derek Jensen, who wrote The Culture of Make-Believe and A Language Older Than Words. And I don't know, you know, if you're familiar with his work. Yeah. But it was really interesting because I think whatever this was, uh, God, my daughter is going to be 18. So it must have been like 20 years ago because I wasn't even pregnant yet that I heard him speak that my that my brother as a teacher had kind of brought him in for a lecture series. And I remember having this moment sitting there where, you know, he really did now that I'm thinking of it, talk about this idea of actually facing our emotions around this and kind of the big, oh shit, that happens when we actually sit with our panic and our fear and our feelings of helplessness around this. But it also, because he was so passionate about it, and one of his messages was, you don't have to do everything, just choose your little bit and do your part. And again, I think that there's two messages that are coming through loud and clear for me. And yes, I know like we have to do everything, but I think what we can do is kind of find our area to mobilize and create some action in a certain area. And that that gets to be, if we're really in touch on emotional level, I think that becomes I was going to say infectious. And then I was like, you might want to rethink that word. But do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, it really does kind of really allow each each other 
Because I notice, like, it's just something that we we go about our days kind of just not talking about this. And I notice even when I post something about it, it's like everybody wants to see your, you know, your puppies and your kitten posts. But like climate change, it's like you, it's like crickets or anything that has anything to do with, you know, like, wow, like we're in dire straits here. Let's talk. Let's do something. And, I, and I'm wondering, like, for those people out there that are like, yeah, like, I'm totally in touch with my emotions around this. I'm devastated. I'm scared. What do I do? What do you say to them? Join the climate emergency movement. Okay. There is a direct action. Yeah, absolutely. It's only a couple of years old. Uh, it's this movement is in response, let's say, or the next iteration of environmentalism for the past like 30 years, which has been what I would call gradualist or incrementalist. The idea that we can deal with climate and other ecological emergencies with small gradual changes, usually little market interventions like pricing carbon that don't really bother anybody, for, fit totally within the capitalist system. And uh, yeah, it's it's just a failed approach. And the climate emergency movement says this is an existential crisis. We need to respond with everything we have. We need it all done, you know, yesterday. So that's, you know, the school strikers, Greta, Extinction Rebellion, the Sunrise Movement, the climate mobilization. Our organization has helped uh, more than 1700 global governments declare a climate emergency and readjust their policy. We pioneered the campaign. It's been taken off far beyond our reach. But just uh, last week, 270 governments in South Korea declared a climate emergency, local governments, and called on their national government for stronger action. And not not even stronger action, but emergency action. So this movement is really like popping off. It's really growing quickly. And though it's on a bit of a <laughs> coronavirus hiatus, but it's it's still there. It's still growing. The Sunrise Movement made like 800,000 phone calls for a congressional candidate, Jamal Bowman, who won. Wow. So like, for yeah, for, for example. So this movement, it is here. And it is growing and and it's and that's all happening because it is it is right. So there's a lot of different ways to join that. I try to break this down in chapter five or step five of my book because it's really complicated. Figuring out how you're gonna join the climate emergency movement is about as personal and complex as choosing your career. There's a place for you in the movement, and the way that you find it is by getting started and showing up to local meetings or at this moment in time, Zoom activities, learning about what's out there and yeah, doing a self-assessment where you fit in. But that's the one thing that you can do today and that you should do every day and that everyone should do is talk about the climate emergency. Break the spiral of silence, post about it on social media, talk about it in one-on-one conversations or in group settings. You can put one thing, one thing that I, I think is actually pretty powerful and you can do quickly, but is to talk about the climate emergency in your email signature. Because mm. you're sending out so many emails all the time, right? And to all kinds of different people. So if it's in your email signature, like mine says, uh, climate change is an emergency. Let's treat it like one. Let's mobilize. And then there's a link to the climate mobilization website. And I guess now also a link to my book. But by 
yeah, so that that message is going out every time. I love that because it's so simple, but it's true. Like people check out each other's signatures to kind of learn where to follow them on social media or where their website is. So it's a perfect place for just a message, you know, to the people that, you know, are our people because we're usually sending messages to people that we are usually in a, a relationship with or are kind of in a personal sphere of influence with. So I love that suggestion, Margaret. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that social media and the internet does facilitate the kind of synergy or excuse me, synchronicity that we were talking about earlier, right? You can kind of put ideas out there and see who they resonate with, see who joins joins into your project. Yeah, I do think that's an important area of communication, especially now since coronavirus has put a lot of <laughs> breaks on in-person stuff. You were talking too about, you know, a lot of the reading that you have done or suggesting. I'm wondering if there's a specific book that you think would be great for our readers to consider or a couple of books that might start them, obviously your own, which is what I love about your book is that it's it's not like this massive long, it's very like short to the point, step by step. I love it. It's just so simple. And it's so easy. So obviously, we're going to have the link to your, your book here. Are there other resources? And you talked about the climate emergency, other resources, other books, other writers or speakers that you would point our audience to? Sure. Uh, the Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells is a great overview of the emergency. Mm and what is actually coming down down the pike so that's that's yeah i i, I if you're going to read one book about climate science and its impact on society that is that's probably the one i really like a paper this that also yeah very simple called how food shortages could bring down or could cause the collapse of civilization by lester brown the former undersecretary of agriculture he talks about civilization collapsing because drought leads to food shortages, which leads to internal and international migration, which leads to destabilize, like domestic destabilization and threat multiplying. So this is basically what happened in Syria. It's a great paper for just quick and easy understanding of why climate change will cause the collapse of civilization, why and how. Yeah. And then if you're looking, the most hopeful book I've ever read about the climate emergency was No Ordinary Time by Doris Kearns Goodwin. It's it's not about the climate emergency. It's about World War II and what this country accomplished when we realized we faced an ex existential threat and made stopping it our overriding national priority. And it is so staggering what we accomplished during that time and how we did so. Yeah, it, these are excellent resources and I'm, I'm marking them down and we'll for sure have them as links. I'm also really thinking that, you know, all of our listeners might also kind of just appreciate, I think there were two other resources that you mentioned, and I'm, I'm trying to find them as you're speaking, and they seemed, they were powerful for you, you had them in the beginning of the beginning chapters of your book. And one was, I think, was it from Eric Fromm? Yeah. Yeah, he's terrific. Yeah, The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm, or I mean, really any of his books, but he yeah, he 
was a psychoanalyst. Yeah, let's say my role model in many mm. ways. Okay, I was going to say, yeah, he seems like he had a huge influence on you in many ways. He was a, So he was a psychoanalyst and he wrote about love. Yeah, his most famous book is The Art of Loving and it is excellent. But he was also extremely political and particularly in applying psychoanalytic frame and kind of humanist frame to the Cold War and the arms escalation, arms race. And he he worked with Kennedy and his papers were really Im- impactful in his advice in terms of how to de-escalate the situation without you know, how to de-escalate the situation emotionally Mm -hmm. as well as practically. Ooh, yeah. So he, and he wrote about nuclear weapons paper called For For the Love of Life. I believe that's right. And because he said, he talked about the, the fact that consumer capitalism causes a feeling of internal deadness and Mm. inauthenticity that if you're already feeling dead inside the idea of mass death feels kind of acceptable his theory was i want to try to get people to love life so that they will protect it and realize that we should not have mass death machine. So I just found this part. I'm going to read it. This is in your book. Fromm postulated that the only reason people would not rise against the possibility of worldwide nuclear destruction was that they were already experiencing devastating destruction internally. On some level, Fromm reasoned, the destruction must have felt appropriate and even appealing, better at least than a bullshit dead-end, alienated and humiliating life. Otherwise, why did our society allow the risk of mass nuclear obliteration to threaten us for decades? Fromm believed that if people inherently felt their lives were precious and worth living, if people felt engaged in life and saw that engagement reflected saw that engagement reflected in others, if people were not housing a deadness within, they would demand an end to the creation of weapons of mass destruction. They would refuse to accept the possibility of the end of all life. Finding myself getting emotional reading that. Good. Yeah, because it's it's really so, it's so interesting that there's actually like this connection to a self-loathing, that the numbness stems from some kind of like deadness inside, that there's this correlation between the death of the planet being acceptable if you actually feel so just unalive. I mean, I say like unalive and and I'm like, yeah, that should absolutely be a a word. It's not dead, just not alive. It's like you're, Mm. it's like you're, you're walking around like a nice house, but nobody's home. Mm. Uh, you know, like breaks my heart. So I guess, you know, like, again, more of that, more heartbreak, more feeling, more, more allowing, more voicing, more outrage, more intolerance. And I don't say outrage in like the destructive way, but like outrage, like this is our home. This is our planet. Look alive. Like let's, let's become alive. And I love too, that you kind of started out your book with like, Hey, there's a Jersey. Like this is like, let's, (laughs) let's play this like a game, right? Like there's a Jersey with your name on it. Yeah. I think we all have a responsibility to be on this mission. It's not even a responsibility like it is actually self-interest. Yeah. It is a kind of enlightened self-interest. I mean, a huge part of why I'm doing this work is because of 
my own, I don't want this to happen to me and to my family and to everyone. So, but, so it's not, you can do it out of desire to protect yourself, uh, people you love or the whole, everyone. It brings self-interest and altruism together. Mm. And I think that it's so important that we find our people in this, that we find our tribe. So, you know, we were talking about using social media as a platform for social change. And I think we can all recognize that something like social media has has great power. And with great power comes great responsibility. And so really kind of understanding how to use it as a force of good is is really is really important because we've we all can see how it can be used as a force for the negative or just the shadow of humanity. And I just want to encourage again our listeners to the same way right that we talked about Black Lives Matter and following strong voices in the Black Lives Matter movement following, you know, the black women who black and brown women and men who are really using their voices and educating us same way I want, you know, our, our listeners to really seek out the voices in the climate crisis and really allow your hearts to be moved, allow your hearts to be opened. You know, I often talk about the fact that we live from the neck up and, Logic is uh, useful, but it's not uh, what I'm hearing, Margaret, is that that's we've got enough of that. What we actually are asking people to do here is to engage their emotions. Yes. And let them motivate you to take effective action. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Which, which then brings back the, you know, the logical, rational side, because you got to say, OK, you know, what is my strategy here? What, you know, how am I going to effectively take part in this? So it's, you just, you you need both. You need both. Yes, absolutely. And so where can our listeners just kind of wanting to also allow them to be able to find you? So your, your primary social media is, is Twitter. Is that right? Yeah. On Twitter, I'm at climate psych. Okay. But let me, but also at facingtheclimateemergency.com, listeners can download the first chapter of the book for free. Awesome. So you, you can check it out because I know this is a kind of a new genre, self-help for the climate emergency. So people don't necessarily know what they're getting into. So check it out. Do you also have an app or am I making that up? No app. No app. Okay. Theclimatemobilization.org for the organization and the climate emergency declarations and that that work. Uh, facingtheclimateemergency.com for the book and the free chapter. Got it. Okay, good. So yay. All right. Well, thank you. This has just been such an honor to have this conversation today. And I just want to thank all of our listeners for you know, allowing yourself to just listen to the whole episode. Because again, I, I think this conversation takes tremendous courage. I love the work you're doing, Margaret. I'm a huge fan. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Humanity Rising, which is where I heard about you, Margaret, and saw you speak and really loved what you were saying. For our listeners, Humanity Rising is actually a series that has been going on now for well, really, I would say since the beginning of COVID, right, Margaret? Yes. So they, they actually are putting out a series with some of the top thinkers um, and change makers in the world to talk about all of what's going on in all of these different realms of climate action, 
emotional intelligence, spirituality. There's so many amazing conversations happening. So I encourage everybody to also check that out at Humanity Rising, I think. Is that is is it Humanity Rising on Facebook or it's through Ubiquity? Ubiquity University. Yeah, in in either places you'll you'll find them. They've got some they're cross-pollinating between those two channels, I think. So thank you again, Margaret, and I look forward to more conversation down the line. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. All right. More to be revealed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.